Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 98. I'm Dave. I'm Ashley. We're a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better by uncovering each other's movie and pop culture blind spots. That means that each time one of us gets to choose something that the other person's never seen, and then we unpack it all here for you. Well, here we are. It's come around the block again to my turn. Yes. And um, we're... In this strange pocket of time right before everything changes. Yep. Like literally we're packing up the uh, the house in the next few days and moving to that new apartment. And uh, I don't know how we even have time to do this. <laughs> <laughs> it's because the boxes don't come till Monday. Okay. So, so instead of being vastly productive on uh, moving our entire lives, <laughs> we are here. Talking about Japanese movies. Yeah. As we are wont to do. It was my turn. It was your turn. You turned. I turned. Um, so I chose the, what is it, 1952 movie Ikiru. Ikiru. Which means to live by one of my favorite film directors, Akira Kurosawa. And um, it's true. It's true. That's Talk that's to me. <laughs> Ask me questions. Well, I, I mean, it's just kind of weird, like, why haven't you seen this movie? I mean, like, I'm because it came out the year my mom was born, I guess. Um, that was a few years before you were born. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> because uh, there were no art theaters in Lubbock, I guess. Um, I, I don't know. I, it was, I just never really... So you had heard of this one before uh, at some point? No, actually, I don't think. I mean, other than I saw it on the Criterion shelf at some so point. I know we have now seen, this is our third, maybe, Kurosawa film that we've yeah. watched together. Second on the podcast, because we did The Seven Samurai a few years ago. Yeah. Which is on my top five list of all time. <laughs> um, this is not on the top five, but it's up there. So had you seen? I cannot remember. Had you seen any Kurosawa films before? The only me? one I known before you know we you had gotten at one of the fifty percent off sales a copy of Dreams. Yeah, that was the first Kurosawa I'd ever seen. I think. Yeah, if you've been with us for a while, we live and die for the fifty percent off Criterion sale at Barnes and Noble twice a year. <laughs> I managed That's, to stay and away where, last where time. you buy the um, sometimes. Favorites that you already have on DVD, on Blu-ray. And I buy random, like, French and Japanese films that look interesting to me. So. Well, it's all about upgrading the yeah. format. And just so you know, we don't have a 4K Blu-ray player, so I'm not planning on upgrading to 4K copies of everything. Okay. Because now... Well, Criterion I mean, at, at this point, these the upgrades, copies. I mean, on Criterion exclusively, has gone from Laserdisc to regular DVD to Blu-ray, and then I guess now we're going into 4K Blu-ray, I guess? I don't know, but... It's 4K Blu-ray. <laughs> How much money have we dropped on... <laughs> so, I will say that there are a handful of movies that I've purchased, like, four times. Yeah. yeah. I probably had a VHS copy of, like, Citizen Kane or mm. The Seven Samurai. And then yeah. I had the laser disc, because yeah. that's how freaking old I am and how weird I was. Yeah. Um, and then I bought the standard DVD of yeah. a whole bunch of things, probably most of the Kurosawa movies. Yeah. And then they've been releasing them, re-releasing them in Blu-ray over the last five or ten years. So I'm slowly... Upgrading the very, 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 very important ones like Seven Samurai and Rashomon. <laughs> you know, it's funny, like, um, how, um, like, an odd role that Criterion has played in my relationships over the years, which is, like, so my ex-husband was also a, a Criterion collector. And um, at the time when I was with him, like, a lot of stuff they had put out was, like, no long they no longer had the license to put them out yeah. anymore. Um, and one of those is Rebecca, and I had a DVD copy. I still do have a copy, a DVD copy of Rebecca. And when we had a, a really bad fight one night, and I left, I took I took with me some clothes and my copy of Rebecca. <laughs> and that's why you're my co-host, and why we get along so well. 
Um, also, I need to watch Rebecca. Again. The other connection there <laughs> is that I also had that Criterion. Yeah, we had copy. to get rid of a copy. So we had to sell off a copy yeah. because we came into the marriage with two Criterion two, two copies of Rebecca. Rebecca. Yeah. So I don't know if it's been re-released on Blu-ray. Yeah, it came out on again. Blu-ray about two years ago. I guess we'll have to upgrade that at some point. Anyway, so yeah. at this point, <laughs> I know we went on a tangent here. I can't really tell the difference between 4K and and on a TV and regular Not Blu-ray. Not as blind like, as I, I am. I, don't I certainly can't know can, how so. the way that the somehow the industry convinced people that they needed to upgrade to 4K too. I'm not sure, but anyway. Well, I mean, I think it has more to do with the kind of films that we don't watch, which is like hyper super like robots throwing themselves at each other. And well, as long like as we're talking about the format wars, I will say when I first got like a restored black and white, I think it was Rashomon. Yeah. When I upgraded to Rashomon on Blu-ray, it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was like seeing a brand new print, perfectly exposed, beautiful, gorgeous, deep black and white. So like there is a there's a huge leap from standard to Blu-ray. Yeah, I'm not convinced there's as much of a leap from Blu-ray to 4K. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It's it's interesting to me because like, I mean like, I guess it it makes less sense for the kids today. Like all of this kind of like because what what they're looking at are like incremental changes, whereas like we were going from like, you know film prints that had like scratches and they were 40 years old and they were taped together and you know you were lucky to even see that in your revival theater and then like nowadays like they saw it digital to begin with you know (laughs) they saw the cleaned up copy so what is the incremental change between slightly higher resolution from the digital copy that they originally saw rather than the like video copy of a (laughs) Of a screening that we saw, you know. So many of the things that I saw when I really got into film, when I was in high school and college, were really bad VHS copies. My first copy of The Third Man was Mm. when it was in the public domain or something. And I bought like a $10 tape on Crown Crown Video. You know, they would be at the Walgreens. Gas stations, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, Now I have the Criterion standard. They never released it in Blu-ray. Yeah. There you go. Anyway, we're going to talk about a movie eventually. Yes, Ikiru. Um, I've been wanting to do this one for a long time, but I I also was like, I wanted to wait a, a sufficient amount of time from the last time we did a Kurosawa. And then I also, I, I was pretty sure this was the next Kurosawa I was going to do. Yeah. I it's really, interesting yeah. To, to show it right after the, we just recorded. Harvey. Harvey, which yeah. like, I think there's a lot in common there i think oh i hope that we remember to cover that because i didn't even think about that so you're gonna have to (laughs) yeah yes yes we can to let you on to open up the let you under the hood for a moment we're recording this like right after the harvey episode which we did two days ago yeah we have a little bit of time so we're getting some of these in the can so we can release them later um, I really wanted you to see one of Kurosawa's non-samurai yeah, feudal yeah. area Japan movies mm-hmm. because he has a, a really rich period of post-war movies that that actually look at what life is like in post-war Japan. You know, there, there's um, some movies about crime and the police and prostitution and just like everyday like life yeah and then you have this movie about a bureaucrat who finds that he's dying so this was the one (laughs) and we did seven samurai in the podcast not rashomon we did seven samurai in the podcast and then later on we watched i want really wanted you to see rashomon but we did not do it as a podcast well that's i I couldn't remember which (laughs) which ones we had done on the podcast um so so um if if slips in here some some comments on Rashomon, don't be surprised. So. <laughs> yeah. So um, I can't really tell you very specifically when I saw this for the first time, like yeah. the moment, the screening, the day, or <laughs> the yeah. year, or anything like that. Except that it was in that that period when I first discovered Kurosawa. Mm. Uh, in the late eighties, in high school, and I'm sure probably during the time when they were doing the retrospective at the Castro Cinema in San Francisco. That's where I, I know I covered this last time. 
three years ago on the podcast, you may recall that I talked about seeing a double feature of uh, Rashomon and Throne of Blood. Oh, which I have not were seen. Were my first two Kurosawa movies. And I just saw them because I lived two blocks away next to the, you know, two blocks away from the best movie theater in town, in my opinion. Yeah. Hundred-year-old landmark movie palace, the Castro, that just was a year-round film festival. And they did a month-long retrospective. Like, they showed everything that Kurosawa had made up to date. I think culminating probably in the release of um, Ron, which mm. had actually come out probably that year, around yeah, that year. 85, 86 or something yeah. like that. So, um, I don't know if I saw this on the big screen then, but I think it would have been around... Like, I got the Kurosawa bug and I wanted to see everything. Yeah. I mean, now I really... Yeah, M on trying to, I really have seen almost everything. I think I've got it down to I've not seen one of his movies, mm. which has always been hard to find, but is actually now playing on Criterion Channel for the first time ever. Oh, okay. Um, a movie he made in the Soviet Union in the 70s called Dursu Uzala about an explorer. Interesting. But I've never seen it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm older now, so yeah. it is a different experience to see a movie about a man who's uh lived his life as a bureaucrat and questions what it's all about and and finds out that he has you know six months or less to live can you fill us in a little bit about the the story and the character uh so it's it's interesting it's i mean it has a narrator to start with that kind of introduces us to our character um, in my reading, I heard that it was um, sort of inspired by the death of Ivan Illich. Um, mm-hmm. The Tolstoy short story. That we all read in, like, what, 12th yeah, did you grade read that? or something? Yeah, we all read it in 12th grade or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I read it in high school. But, uh, you know, um, we have a bureaucrat that's worked for 30 years for the city hall of what city are they in I don't, is it tokyo i or? thought it was tokyo okay for the bureau of public affairs yeah or something so since like that. the 1930s so that means like he worked there even like through the war he just every day showed up and um and although in the there's a flashback to him saying farewell to his son when his son goes off to war to and, war and yeah. they're both in uniform so he probably had some sort so of service, service but it was probably yeah. older than most that were sent overseas yeah um it's interesting. I had just, um, in the last six months or so, read um, the Wind Up Bird Chronicle, which talks a lot about the Japanese involvement in the World War Two. Yeah. And some, like, stuff that I didn't know about, like, um, them invading China and fighting the Soviet troops, you know. So, anyway, interesting um, tie-ins that I, I was thinking about while we were watching this. Um but, I mean, he works in um, public affairs office. He's the section chief. Yeah. And so, I mean, like, it looks like he just reads papers and then stamps them with his little name stamp and then puts them in another pile. That's, like, what he does. But literally, <laughs> that office can't do anything if he's not If he doesn't to, stamp, to stamp with things. his name stamp, yeah. So, um, I've forgotten the name. There's a specific name for the... I've never they're, known that. They're... they're customized name stamps and they still use them in mm-hmm. Japan like official documents have to have like wedding wedding things and transfers of property and stuff like that they actually physically have to have that you know oh. official name stamp sort of in the them. same way we have to get things notarized maybe, yeah or? yeah um and like it's it's like a big thing like you get them custom carved and um anyway they're an important thing that you need to have to do business in Japan um so he he does that, and um, he hasn't missed work in almost 30 years. Um, <laughs> what is he, one month shy of having perfect <laughs> attendance for, for 30, 30 years? For 30 years, yeah. He's been there every day for 30 years. And then there's, like, some flashbacks in there where, like, um, like his son had surgery, and he still went to work, you know, and his wife died, and he still went to work, you know, that sort of... Um, I guess, yeah, you kind of get the idea that he hasn't missed work since the day his wife died or something like that, you know. So the whole time his kid was growing up and everything, he just was showing up to do his bureaucracy thing. Um, And then, like, there's this side story where these women come to the desk where he's working and ask. They have, like, an open cesspit 
full of like toxic chemicals in their neighborhood. It's and like <laughs> sewage water yeah. and it's mosquito infested and it's giving their children rashes yeah. and probably like tuberculosis or right. um, malaria, not tuberculosis. Um, <laughs> There's a different Kurosawa movie. That's the tuberculosis. <laughs> oh, okay. This one is the malaria. So we'll have to catch that sometime. It's called drunken angels. So these poor women are sent from like one bureau to another inside the government building and like nobody will help them. They're like, Oh, well that's public works. And they go to public works and public work is like, yeah, that's sewage, sewage treatment. treatment. And then like, well it, it's children. So go to the schools and these poor women are like, nobody will help them. They just keep getting. No. And there's a montage where they literally go to a dozen different yeah. offices and you see all of the interactions and then they end up back where they started. Yeah. So I guess like the next thing that it becomes clear that, that, um, our hero, I think they actually call him that our hero. Yeah. Um, he's, he's not able to eat as much as he was. And so he takes the next day off to go to the doctor and where he meets this guy that's like, you know, they're going to tell you that it's just a mild ulcer, um, but that means you have stomach cancer, and, like, he names all the symptoms that the guy is experiencing, and so the guy knows that he has stomach cancer, and he only has, like, six months to live. Um. Yeah, that, should, that seems kind of chilling, because yeah. the guy's like, oh, so what's bothering you? He's like, oh, my stomach's been bothering you. And he's like, well, you really have nothing to worry about unless you, unless they tell you that you have nothing to worry about. It's just a minor ulcer. There's no reason to operate. And you can eat whatever you want as long as it doesn't bother you. If he tells you that, forget it. That's a death sentence. Yeah. That's literally what the doctor tells him when he goes in. But before that, when he names off, you only yeah. really need to worry if, like, you know, you haven't been able to eat without it being yeah. painful and you can't digest anything and you have trouble <laughs> going to the bathroom and all that. And every single thing, the guy's face just, like, the, the word crestfallen, right? Yeah. You get, like, he slumps down in, in frame in close-up and he's, like, facing the camera in close-up and the guy's still yammering on behind yeah. him. And the music takes on this kind of dirge, like, boom, boom. Yeah. And you, you, that's kind of a moment where you really go into his subjectivity for the first yeah. time, I think. And then he goes in there and I don't understand this thing where the doctors lie to you when you have cancer in, in, in this movie. Like, do, well, and it's also in uh, the farewell that we, well, we, that's China. This that's is China, Japan. Yeah. Po- this is Japan, you know, in the fifties. Mm-hmm. What is to be gained from lying to the patient who's there to get a, a diagnosis to just say, Oh, it's just a minor ulcer. There's nothing to worry about. And everybody in the room knows that the doctor's lying. And he even fights back and says, level with me, you know, tell me the truth. truth? It's it's stomach cancer. He's like, oh, absolutely not. It's not. And you can see the intern in the back and the nurse like kind of like coughing and making side eye because they know. Well, I mean, if I had to guess, knowing a a minor amount about medical care is that there just weren't very many treatments for cancer. You know, and the certain types of cancer was it considered to be more humane to lie to someone about their diagnosis, or was there like it, they felt too ashamed, even as a doctor, to tell someone that they're dying? I mean, I just don't understand the motivation. I mean, it's probably cultural, but it also partly is like you know just the the limits of medical science at the time. You know, you shouldn't have doctors who are like too afraid to look you in the eye and tell you you yeah. have cancer. Well, I mean, like it must be a miserable job though to yeah. like. I mean, like you have to be a certain kind of person to do that kind of work. I would think you know, um, you know, the ability to be empathetic, but also to sort of separate yourself from it in a way so that it doesn't like absolutely devastate you every time it happens. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not an easy job to be that kind of doctor, you know, where they do that sort of thing. So, so where do we go from here? So it's interesting. Like he, I mean, is clearly really upset by the news. He goes home and like he, his son and his wife, his son's, sorry, his son's wife and his son live with him. And they're like talking about the inheritance they're going to get from his dad. When he walks in the door. Well, actually, he's already. Oh, home. that's right. He's already he's sitting home. in the dark. Yeah, that's and right. And they come in like talking smack about how they want they had to live in this dump with him, and they'd rather live in a better place. And if they had more money, and why can't we have access to his pension and get his money so that we 
we they can get a better in a place. New house. And then he's heard all of that. They yeah. switch on the light and see that he's sitting there and has heard everything. Yeah. And then they get upset with him for having like heard Yeah, for that, being in the for room. For being in the room. <laughs> um so he he just I think he just like up and leaves. Like I can't remember. He may get up as if he's going to go to work. No, I'm, I'm no, getting I the No, I think he goes wrong. to sleep, but then he... Or he tries to go to sleep, but then he can't. And then he wakes up and he goes to a bar. Oh, before that, though, is when... Is that section of flashbacks, I think, mm, that we... About his son. So and... that's, for me, one of the most... Like, it's just a beautiful passage in Kurosawa's, like, whole work. Is that sequence where... He's just gotten the news and he's come home. I think it's after some of those interactions with the son that he has that series of flashbacks sort of telling the story of his mm -hmm. love for his son. Yeah. And you get like, like when his son like goes off and closes the door or I think his son goes upstairs and he's going to follow them upstairs yeah. in the dark and you see him in the dark in the shadows of the at the foot of the stairwell and he just stops like he can't bring himself to walk up and then you hear him there's this refrain of his voice going Mitsu yeah Mitsu and then it takes you in and out of these different flashbacks and you see the first one I think is his wife's he's following his wife's the the car that had like it's not a hearse but it's yeah. the the car that has her um coffin on it and um riding in the back in in mourning with his son his child his son as a child and the son saying oh hurry up mommy's gonna get away you know speed yeah. up speed up and you have the appendix operation yeah. scene where he takes his son to the appendix you have the scene at the baseball game where he's yeah. momentarily very proud as his son hits the a, a great hit and is running the bases and then a moment of shame when the kid gets called out after trying to steal a base and mm. everyone's like what was that stupid idiot thinking and, I'm like, and now he's no longer like that's yeah. my kid um, and then I think the last flashback is the son getting on the train during wartime. War. Yeah. And there's really a nice moment where like the son doesn't want to leave him and you yeah. really feel like that love and connection between mm. them. Like you never get again. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you get this, you, he says it and you get the sense that he lived this kind of boring, stable life. His excuse was, I'm just doing it for my son to give him stability and the best life possible when, you know, after his mom died. But in reality, it's one of those, it's like straight out of Ozu or something where you have like the older generation and then the younger generation that takes them for granted and doesn't yeah. really, you've made these sacrifices and they're just kind of like, ugh, you're in the way and why do we have to live here? Like Tokyo Story is a bit like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so then I guess he he heads out to... He takes out some money and goes to the bar and meets a... a novelist. Novelist. And they, like, spend all night, like, partying with women and drinking and dancing and, and doing that sort of thing. Um, and it's funny, on the way home, he meets... This is like his second day that he's been gone from work. People are starting to wonder what's going on. Like, yeah, he showed up without <laughs> yeah. taking sick leave. It's like yeah. he's MIA. <laughs> they literally don't know what to make of the fact. He's never, ever been out before. Yeah. Um, and there's a girl that worked in his section that wants to resign in order to take a job elsewhere. Um, but she, of course, can't resign until she gets a piece of paper with, with his, his stamp. name stamp on it. Um, so, um, she comes and finds him and he's like, oh yeah, I'll come to my, you know, house. I'll, I'll sign off on it so that you can leave your job. But then, um, they end up spending like the afternoon together, like, um, you know. Yeah. What I remember is, um, uh, is he takes her back to his house and every, isn't that when everybody sees him bring her home? Yeah, so his So son, they, everybody immediately gets the wrong idea of yeah. what is this young woman in her 20s or something coming back with, you know. Yeah. So they immediately get the wrong idea about that. And he just signs off on her thing. Mm -hmm. And he happens to notice that she has a run in her stocking. Yeah. And so he walks her out again and um, 
back to the train or whatever and says, well, where can, where can one buy, you know, women's stockings? And she says, oh, you know, one of the department stores or whatever. The Western department store. Yeah, the Western department (laughs) store. And so um, their afternoon starts with him buying, she's like, oh, for your daughter-in-law, right? And he doesn't say anything. (laughs) Well, he's given her the gift of that. And so you cut to, he's got, she's got the package and she's like, you didn't need to do that. I don't understand why you did that. And he's like, well, you just had a run in it and I can do that. And I want to do that. And and they end up spending a long day and evening together. Yeah. They go out to lunch and they, they, they eat a lot. They go out. Well, she does the eating. He keeps giving her his portion. (laughs) They get ice cream. They go to like a carnival kind of thing. They go play pachinko. Yeah. Um, They have another dinner together. Like, and he just doesn't want, to leave her side. Yeah. And she has a very, she has a great laugh. You know, she has sort of a joyful outlook on life. She, like, she's leaving the the job that he was stuck in for 30 years after a year and a half because it's boring and she doesn't want to do it anymore. And that's it's inspiring interesting to because she's, she's like, <laughs> I don't want to do this for 30 years. Yeah. And this is her opportunity to get out like he never did. Yeah. You know? And also what's funny is she has a disparaging nickname for all of her coworkers and yeah. him. And she called him the mummy. Yeah. I mean, he, he thinks it's hilarious, all the ones she's yeah. given to everybody. It, he gets a little sober when she tells him that he's the mummy. And it's perfect because yeah. he's been this kind of automaton dead inside, yeah. just sitting there stamping papers, expressionless. And the actor, Takashi Shimura, in this movie, his face is just so impassive. And his, you know, I was like, it seemed like a long time ago, but I was like, somehow he's mastered this ability for to like not move any facial muscles. Yeah. He just looks like he's this, he has this kind of grimace and, this, and, and you can almost feel the pain in his stomach somehow with the expression that's on his face. Yeah. And so I think what, draws him to her is like just her how full of life she is and the laugh and how fun she is and silly and just kind of living in the moment yeah it's it's this whole thing about youth right like if you could just chat if you could just bottle that well and he i mean he gets a little codependent on her he keeps coming around and she gets more and more uncomfortable with him hanging out with her all the time. You know, she's not sure if he's trying to have a relationship with her. It starts Um, to feel like he's trying to date her. Yeah. To her. Yeah. And we can understand how it seems. So he finally admits that he has cancer and that he has a limited time left. But I think at the same time, he just realizes that she can't be the one that gives him the purpose or the, that, that he has to find something else that's going to be his reason for, for continuing to live the last little part of his life. So he has sort of an epiphany um, after she kind of tells him, like, you have to, you have to stop this. You have to leave me alone. Um, You know, you know, I build rabbits because it brings joy. She, she works in a toy company because it brings joy to the children of Japan. And so he's like, what can I do? That means something. That means something that'll bring, you know, and so he finds his purpose, which is to, um, you know, step outside of his role as section chief and work towards getting this cesspit that the women brought filled in. Which is really good yeah. because you remember that now that this was introduced in the beginning and you looked at me and said, he's going to, he's going to build the park. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that because I didn't know he was going to build a pot. Well, I, don't know. I just I thought, thought he was going to fill it he in. He said he's going to fill in the cesspit. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, and you were exactly right. That's his. And it's not just that his Ces- life. Cesspit in the first act. <laughs> yeah. There was something in the first act. And I don't remember. Oh, that was in Single Wife. Yeah, yeah, we were which watching. Which is not a podcast. Movie. No. Um, I totally forgot what I was going to say. Oh, I was going to say that it's not just that his life was boring and that he never did anything and he just lived by routine and had this dull job pushing papers around. It's that his life had no meaning. Yeah. And that's the same thing that comes out of the death of Ivan Ilyich, mm. too, is that's the realization when it's too late that you've lived for nothing. And yeah. even the person you thought you lived for, his son, yeah. 
didn't really notice. Or, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You're just taken for granted. Well, I mean, and I think that that's like something that, that people don't realize is you can't live for other people. You have to find something in yourself that makes it worth worthwhile, you know. Um, it can't all be ex- exterior. It has to be interior. So he found his his purpose at the end, which is, you know... Um, but it's, it's interesting because the next part, like after he has the sort of realization and he actually does the thing where he stands up and says, let's go make this happen. Let's, you know, you know, break down the bureaucratic inefficiency. And I love that it's like, in addition to like meaning, it's like a takedown of like the Japanese bureaucracy, bureaucracy at the same time. The whole system was designed <laughs> so that nobody ever has to do anything yeah. because you just keep pushing it off onto another office. Yeah. And it's like everything is set up in such a way to so that if something's not properly filed or brought up in the right way or signed or it's just out, there's no jurisdiction to actually solve a real problem. Which, I mean, like, is the case like any bureaucracy? I mean, not not specifically the Japanese bureaucracy, but if any, like, level of government or policy-making body, like, it just turns into this massive, like, oh, that's not our area. We don't have to handle that. But that section's almost like a comedy, that montage in the beginning where the women are just around and around in a circle. I mean, except they have, like, a terrible toxic cesspit. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, like, so then we flash forward to after he's died and the people who are at his funeral... And, like, there's this big sort of, like, unpacking discussion that happens where they're, like, you know, the deputy mayor's there and he's, like, people are saying that he got the park built, but really it was my office that got the park built. And then, and then of course, the people from the parks department, they got it built, you know. Um, but so, and then after the deputy mayor leaves, then, like, the people who are actually on the ground, the sort of underlings... Um, of the different departments start discussing it and it was like yeah we never would have done anything if he hadn't you know begged our the parks guy to pay attention to and read the proposal well there's one there's one guy from his office yeah. in particular one of the underlings in public affairs who's like outraged by yeah. all of that the attempt to take credit and he's yeah. almost in tears i mean yeah. he stands up as like watanabe is the one who made that happen. Yeah. Nothing was happening without him. Nobody did anything. He's the one who took it here and there. And then they all start filling in their yeah. piece of the story and all the pieces they witnessed of him mm-hmm. going from this office to that office and how he did push it through, yeah. visit the site, talk to everybody. Well, And what's also interesting is like they slowly piece together the fact that he must have known that he had stomach cancer, even though he never told anyone. He didn't other than the girl who worked at the factory. So there's did, a lot of denial and disbelief yeah, about like the, that. Yeah, like the son didn't believe that he knew. They thought he just died. I mean, he, he died in on the playground um, of the park that, that was built over the suspect. That's what he was doing when he died. Um, and and they discovered through autopsy, autopsy that he had stomach cancer, but his son didn't know ahead of time. No one at the office knew that he had it. Although as like... Sick as he was, it's it's surprising that they didn't know that he had something going on. <laughs> um, but they talk about how that purpose, you know, he, he felt it seemed like he didn't want to die until he had accomplished that thing that he wanted to accomplish and he got it accomplished. And then like throughout the evening, they're getting drunker and drunker and like they start making these big promises about how they'll never let this sort of bureaucratic inefficiency stop them from doing what needs to be done in the future. And, um, you know, they'll have the bravery to step up. And and what an inspiration Watanabe yeah, was, yeah. you know, how they will live in his honor. You know, they will try yeah. to be do good acts like he did. They also um, realize in talking it out that he did know yeah. that he had cancer because a few of them remember him making remarks like I don't have much time left yeah. and and that and and by the end even the son realized that he knew yeah he must have known and that was part well, of his I think inspiration he, before he went to the park he left like a little package with his name stamp and 
the information on how to file for his pension for his son. So, I mean, like, I think the implication is that they knew that he, he knew he was going to... He was tidying his he affairs. He was die. Yeah. And, and so, like, that's how his son and, and his wife found out that, um, that he knew about it. But, I mean, like, the, this, the final stroke that kind of, like, makes this brilliant is the last scene we have where someone comes there we're back at the office of foreign affairs i mean not foreign affairs uh public affairs and somebody comes to the desk with 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 you know some sort of complaint and the new section chief like takes out his name stamp and stamps it and the guy who was just so impassioned by um by the work, um, he sort of stands up and looks at the section chief after the section chief has promised that, you know, he'll never let this sort of complacency come back. And, and so the guy like stands up and looks at the section chief and then everybody else just goes back to what they were doing and nothing happens. It goes back to the same sort of complacent bureaucratic and you, you just know, have thing. people feeling bad about them being complacent, yeah. <laughs> but still not having the courage to actually change anything. Which, I mean, I think is such a beautiful illustration of, like, human behavior. It also, to me, is particularly, like, at a funeral, when you're experiencing a high degree of grief, you say and do things and make promises that, like when you're back into your normal state of life that you just don't follow through on. So like, it's just such a beautiful illustration. And those poor men have been drinking for hours. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of sake. So. <laughs> um, so, I mean, like it's, 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 I think it's an affection. It's an, an indictment of our sort of human, you know, tendency to drift back towards the mean, but the also sort of loving that about humans is that they, you know, they have these like delusions of grandeur in these high emotional states and then, you know, fall back to our old routines pretty, pretty universally, you know, every once in a while you have a big change. Which know? makes the movie feel more truthful and honest. Yeah. yeah. And even more, I don't know lovingly observant of human behavior in yeah. a way like it's an acceptance of all that we are good and bad yeah they always talk about kurosawa as being one of the great humanist directors mm-hmm. you know that that's I not f- i find you know it's it's interesting because i feel like you know i've been reading a lot of japanese literature i i spent a lot of time watching youtube videos of uh yeah, you do. of uh people from japan you know doing tourism in japan like so going to mm-hmm. if they're from tokyo they go to osaka and kyoto yeah and and i just i i feel like maybe baked into the culture is this sort of acceptance of the flaws of humanity you know and that you know sometimes your flaw you just can't escape it it's it's built it's hard baked into you and you can't but that doesn't make you any less lovable or valuable or you know I don't know. There's no... Rarely have I come across in a lot of the novels like a true villain, like someone who's just evil for the sake right. of evilness, that there's something in them that makes them behave in the way that they do. You know, they can't they can't help themselves almost, you know, so... Let me... I'll pose this question. Yeah. Like, how... Does it matter? Like, does it... Do we... Is it necessary for his colleagues and for his son and everybody to understand and know that he gave this gift of the park and, and was responsible for this as a last act of kindness and purpose. Does, is that part of its meaning or is, I mean, it wouldn't it have, he, it has personal meaning for him and it was an achievement for him and a dying wish yeah. essentially but it's like well no he it, got everything he wanted but there's you this know? great amount of time spent in the film the entire last act yeah. that's got to be at least 30 or 40 minutes long mm. the memorial scene yeah. so it's a very odd structure of a film yeah. where two-thirds of it you're following um watanabe through you know the night world with the novelist and then through the day and try, the distraction of the the girl mm-hmm. and then his insight and epiphany that he wants to 
do this work. And then, and then this long section, a good third of the movie yeah. is actually, he's dead now. And yeah. now we're going to like tell the story of what he did. Yeah. How did, how did you experience that? Like, how did that feel? Was it odd? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, like, I, I don't think it was odd. I it's mean, an unusual it, it made structure sense for a movie. I, it's interesting because, like, from from that you get that you get the multiple perspectives. You get his perspective and what it meant to him, and then you get the sort of exterior variety of perspectives about what that meant to, you know, and like what it means. I mean, like I think you even got some flashbacks in the park where the women that he helped, you know were helping him out and, and talking to him. And, you know, so when he visits the park that, that, so like you get the view of the people who, and, and oh, they came, they came to the funeral to light incense for him briefly, you know, and they, they all talked about what he, a great man he was and, and what they, what he brought to their lives. And mm-hmm. so you get that perspective from the people that he directly helped and you get the perspective of the people that he worked with to get the thing accomplished. And you get the perspective of the higher ups and his son who was tangentially related. And I, I don't know, I think it's interesting is like any act that you do, you know, of, of course, there are going to be like a thousand different perspectives on the thing that you did. But we're you given know? <laughs> enough perspectives to have more meaning about yeah. its significance. Yeah. Like, we need all of those perspectives yeah. to tell the whole story. Yeah. But, I mean, like, the thing is, is, like, if you look at it from from his perspective, I mean, like, I don't know if he's satisfied with his whole life, but he was able to do this one thing that was important to him at the end of his life, you know? And, and like, I think personally that was satisfying to him, and it was good because it it helped the people of that particular neighborhood you know but of course there's all of these other you know surrounding perspectives you know so i don't know it's <laughs> it's kind of like the internet now like as you can see all those perspectives all the time you mm-hmm. know any one thing that happens everybody has like a thousand different takes on it well you now know? there's so much noise it's yeah. almost the opposite problem yeah like, how do you make meaning out of <laughs> That many That's true. You know, well, you just have to cut, you know, get off and 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 you know, live your life, do the thing that you want. So another um, important realization that comes out of the memorial service is, um, up until the policeman shows up, mm-hmm. sort of the story going around is that he died tragically, freezing to death yeah. in the park. Yeah you know, miserable, froze to death on the night of a snowstorm or whatever and died of exposure and all that sort of stuff. But the policeman uh, who was on duty that night that he died also comes towards the end to light incense for him and to say how he saw him that night and how he wished he had done something, but he just thought he was a regular, he just thought he was an ordinary drunk sitting out there you know, he and he and he said, and by and he looked perfectly happy and at peace. Yeah. To which suddenly changes the story of yeah. in what way what was he experiencing when he died? So do you remember our last view of him? We get after that whole memorial yeah. service, is we the movie gives us another flashback to the night he died, and it's that beautiful, just iconic. It's like always shown in clips yeah. of Kurosawa films of of Watanabe sitting on the swings, swinging back and forth in the snow at night and singing that song from the 20s or yes. whatever it's from, from fall, his past. Fall in love maidens or something life like that. Brief, L- um, yeah, life is so brief. Yeah, life is brief. So fall in love maidens or something like that. Well, and it's interesting because it's, so it's the second time that we've heard this song. The first time was the night that he spent out with the novelist like carousing and having a good time and he asked the uh, guy at the bar, to the piano player, to play um this yeah. song and so like in that context it's like live it up while life mm-hmm. but in that in that in the last context it's more like you know life is beautiful do what you can while you're here kind mm-hmm. of 
kind so of thing. So even the same song has different meaning in the different contexts. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's really you know beautiful way to wrap it wrap up the whole thing. So I have to tell you this because I don't know if you noticed, unless your reading took you about this. The actor mm-hmm. Takashi Shimura. First of all, what a performance! Mm. I always think of him as an old man. The dude was forty-seven years oh, old. Wow. Younger than I am, (laughs) which is also kind of freaky because I had to look it up because I was like, I know he's younger than he appears to be, but I didn't realize he was that young and that he was younger than I am now, which always (laughs) freaks me out. You know, it's like it's even with when we were talking about La Dolce Vita, when I saw that movie, I was a kid and and, you know, Marcello Mastriani in his 30s, you know, now I'm Mm. well beyond that. And and it's weird to see these again. But um, so. Consider his ability to play an old, infirm, sick, paralyzed, sad man, right? Sad dads. Um, (laughs) What you need to know is that, and i got to check the timing on this. This movie was two years after Rashomon. So I'm glad Mm -hmm. you've seen the ones that you've seen. In Rashomon, he had a bit part. um, He was the woodcutter, who's Mm -hmm. one of the men sitting out in the rain under the... Uh, telling the story yeah. and he's the one who who was in the woods with his axe and was the first to, to tell the story of what happened and mm. the, okay but more memorable than that is this guy Watanabe Inikuru is the leader of the seven samurai two years after this movie oh, okay he played the balded the balding yeah. kambe you know the like masterful <laughs> amazing <laughs> samurai that everyone looks up to yeah. strong like sword fighter archer the leader of the seven samurai and it's just amazing to me i've always been fascinated um, by this actor and so I've, rashomon was 50 so th- the timing is rashomon 1950 mm. ikiru 1952 seven samurai 1954 so two years after he played this dying old man he played kambe the, mm. the leader of the seven <laughs> samurai who is just an amazing role course you know that was remade as the magnificent seven and i don't know was it yule brenner or somebody who played the part i'm not oh, sure yeah, i, I, I can't i don't think i've ever actually seen the magnificent i haven't seen seven. it either so but um these three there's one other movie in there so they're not completely consecutive but that's 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 where they follow Cronault. no it's um he did a he did an adaptation of dostoevsky's the idiot okay between um maybe between Rashomon and and this. You know, it's it's interesting. I I just the the relationship between um the like Russian or the yeah, Russian you know, like Dostoevsky yeah. and yeah, yeah. um Chekhov and like I mean, independent film in general, but specifically Japanese film. I think it's very interesting that there's that 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 relationship there. Well, it's not just a general relationship because Kurosawa specifically Mm -hmm. was hugely influenced by the Russian novelist and talks in his interviews about how much he loves Tolstoy and Dostoevsky most of all, I think. He did adapt The Idiot, one of Dostoevsky's Mm -hmm. novels. He adapted The Lower Depths, which was um, a play by Turgenev, maybe? Now Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, I think so. Well, might be wrong. It's, it's, unfortunately, my my experience with the Russians is rather limited. Yeah. I, I mean, I've read a few short stories and then um, half of Anna Karenina. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, I've read a bunch of the Chekhov plays, so yeah. um, which I like a lot, um, but have not read much else other than that. So I feel kind of like limited in my ability to discuss that. No, I'm just saying, but you're dead. I'm saying you're dead on because he actually was really influenced and even adapted some of the works, but like, that's definitely part of his sensibility Yeah, is, is the humanity, the drama, Mm. and even the sense of the ethical stakes of life and death and good and evil and stuff like that. Yeah. It's interesting. I just wonder if, like, in our sort of, like, viewing of more of the films of, you know, Asia and Japan and the, Mm -hmm. you know, if there is more of a sort of focus on the sort of foibles of humanity than, than a lot of the Western 
like European literature, which I don't know, seems more focused. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I just haven't read enough of, of European novels from, but like, to me, like the, the sort of, sort of like really getting into the flaws of the characters is something that's really strong in Russian literature. And I think particularly strong in a lot of the films that we've seen coming out of Japan and Korea and Mm -hmm. China, that they're looking at the like individual characteristics and character flaws that make people interesting. And like you, you end up with a movie like drive my car where it's Mm -hmm. this in-depth exploration of like these two people and how their relationships interact and, I don't know. I, I I don't see that as much in sort of our like American European kind of film, and maybe not even much in in literature. Like we have maybe more of a focus on like an individual hero mm-hmm. kind of thing. I don't know. I, I don't know if there's any truth to that, but that's like what I'm feeling right now. So <laughs> <laughs> I think there's probably some truth to that. Yeah. I was smiling because Drive My Car also has uh, they're putting on a play of Uncle Vanya by Chekhov in in the in the movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So there's a Russian. <laughs> I there's forgot about that. Yeah. A Russian connection, just explicit <laughs> Russian connection to that too. Uh, I find that, that was adapted from a Murakami, um, from a couple mm. of Murakami stories that. Well, I and Murakami and is very. I mean, like you can see the influence on the of the of the Russian novels on his. Yeah. But you can also see the sort of influence of like the great American and 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 European novelist as well yeah. on on that. I mean, it's it's a very contemporary style novel. I mean, like you read it next to Franzen, and and there's a lot that's very similar to to that. So which that, which one are you talking about? A Wind Up Bird oh, Chronicle, okay, yeah. which is like a vast sort of. Although it's it's infinitely weirder than a Franzen book is. It's mm-hmm. it's it's got these fascinating details and this sort of sense of I mean like maybe that he's read some of um Garcia, like the yeah the and you know magical, magical realism stuff. kind of thing going on too. Yeah. So I mean like you can see that Murakami is like widely read of mm-hmm. all the all the different novelists um but I don't know, it's a fascinating, fascinating book that I read, but definitely has like some ties to some of that Russian, Russian-ness. It's on so, my TBR list. I picked up a copy of it. I know you yeah. did, you uh, got it from the library. Well, I but. mean, like, I'll say that, that there are some parts of it that are quite disturbing. So, I, I mean, like, you be careful there's with... torture sequences. Yeah, there. there's a pretty descriptive... I mean, and essentially it's, it's during, you know during and after World War II and the interaction between the, you know, the Soviet soldiers and the Japanese soldiers, mm-hmm. you know, during that whole time. And which is like a fascinating part of history that they don't, I mean, like in the U.S. we learn, historically we learn about, you know, the the fight in Europe and then the fight in, and, and, and specifically the fight that's like France and Britain focused really like we don't ever really talk about the Germans fighting the Soviets on that side, but this is even on the other side of the world. So it's not just the U.S. engaging with Japan, but it's Japan engaging with China and engaging with the Soviet Union on on that side. So like as you move farther away from the U.S., we get less and less understanding of what's going on on the you know literally the other side of the planet from us. And like there's such interesting like engagement about like. The relationship between China and and mm-hmm. the Soviet Union, and and the relationship between the Japanese troops and the Soviet troops, and I don't know, it's kind of fascinating. And like, there's all this history that we just didn't study, like, mm-hmm. you know, like Korea's relationship with Japan, which you know was not all that good either, <laughs> you know. So there's, um, I don't know, there's there's some fascinating stuff that's in that book that mm-hmm. that gets like pulled out, you know, because. It's stuff that unless you particularly study it, we it's not covered in our sort of basic survey mm-hmm. of, you know, US centered history <laughs> that we unfortunately have, you know, so and I didn't, you know, take much history beyond mm-hmm. that in college, you know, because I was interested in other things. But um, I love that literature and film bring that to the forward. I don't know. So this is I don't know how related this is, but <laughs> keep on riffing. Yeah. <laughs> 
so now you've seen um, a non-samurai Kurosawa post-war Japan mm. movie. I, w- I want to show you some more of them sometime. Okay, yeah, I'd be interested to see that. I mean, I am really fascinated with this time period. The po- I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated with past- post-war anyway. I'm, po- I'm, I'm fascinated by the design choices. I'm fascinated by the architecture. But, you know, the thing is, is all of those are cultural things that come out of mm-hmm. the of the reaction to this massive upset that upset. I mean, like not the whole world, but a lot of the world was really upset by this whole thing. And it changed the way that, I mean, it changed the trajectory of the world, the way we think about things. It made everything more modern than we were before. You know, it turned us into an urban, a lot of countries into urban places instead of, you know, country places, you know, it's, it really transformed everything in a way. And so I'm always fascinated in that, like, like, and there's still like, like you go to the different towns in Japan and they have these beautiful, like mid century um, TV towers that they're still, you know, that, that are these sort of like monuments of Tokyo or Osaka, you Mm -hmm. know, that are these, these sort of, or Sapporo, these, you know, it's, it's history, but it's like, like, we're moving towards technology. Anyway, I'm I'm always fascinated by stuff. So I, I love mid-century film from any place, anywhere, anytime, yeah, well, you know. And our friend, this actor, Takashi um, <laughs> Shimura, uh, is usually, he's one of Kurosawa's regulars. So he's in all of these. Yeah. So um, I need to show you Stray Dog, mm-hmm. which is a little earlier. So late 40s, he did a couple movies. He did Stray Dog, which is... Um, kind of looks at like the underbelly of mm-hmm. you know crime and it literally the story is um a, a kind of a, a rookie cop mm-hmm. um uh his gun is stolen yeah. and the whole movie it's like that wire episode or whatever <laughs> like where is is he has to he has to find his gun somewhere yeah. out there are no guns in yeah. society someone out there has his gun and he needs to find it before it's before someone gets killed or it goes yeah. to bad use. The entire thing is his journey through, you know, the nightlife of, and, you know, the brothels and the red light district and, you know, with his mentor cop played by Takashi yeah. uh, Shimura. Toshiro Mifune is the young cop and, like, no, no beard this time. Mm. He's, like, clean-shaven, 20-something, uh, trying to find that gun. And it's fascinating. It's like a film noir, but uh, but actually the very also realist look at life in, in Tokyo um, and the poorer side of things when things are still still being rebuilt and people are scraping by and and you have you know rations and um, things like we saw in this movie mm-hmm. places where there's cesspits and things that haven't been repaired and and uh, you know damage and, and that kind of stuff it's a really good movie mm. and drunken angel okay story of a gangster and a tuberculosis doctor okay the doctor so is takashi shimura the gangster is toshiro mifune so <laughs> it's like all the same guys it's like mix them up and put them in a different situation mm. and they're really good and it's i don't know especially if it's i don't know if it's harder to connect to the samurai type movie at all but yeah because those in a certain way are more like westerns or you know yeah but if you're interested in actual, like, <laughs> life in the streets, yeah. mid-century, you'll get more of that in, in those I'm, couple of I'm movies, into I think. I'm here for that. So. Yeah. so do you have any other thoughts on trying to think where we've been today? Anything yeah. that I... You know, it's funny. I don't know. I think it's maybe just Kurosawa in general, but like, it's like, if you think about the concept of the film, it's a pretty simple concept, but look at what a like vast far reaching discussion we were able to pull out of it, you know, like, um, and I, I was thinking that it was kind of a simple story, but as we were talking about it, it like drew out so many more ideas than, than I had even first picked up on. Maybe I, I don't know. Well, it wasn't just a story about yeah. a man. It was yeah. a story about bureaucracy. Yeah. It was a story of life in post-war Japan. Yeah. It was a story of the strain between these family him and his son. Yeah. Um, you had this weird intergenerational relationship for a while yeah. with him and the young girl. Um, yeah, there's a, there's some it's 
it does seem simple, but it's very rich when you yeah. get into it. I don't know. I've probably seen it about five times. Well, it's it's interesting to me because I thought, like, compared to, like, Rashomon, which actually has a very complex story structure. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I told you that I ran into one of our friends at work. Yeah. Um, and uh, he has a new baby. Yeah. And he, um, well, he he didn't give me context at yeah. first. He's like, yeah, so what do you think about Rashomon? It's like, it's really, like... I haven't gotten that far into it, but I really, I'm not sure if I get what's going on, you know? And I was like, oh, really? I was like, so you haven't seen the whole thing yet? I was just waiting to see the whole thing. He's like, yeah, it's not really like, he's like, I've been watching it in like 10 minute increments early yeah. in the morning while feeding the bottle to the baby. Yeah. And I was like, oh no, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I don't really get what's going on. I was like, it, I think that the way you're watching it is kind of messy. It's not going to work. Well, I mean, so, like, Rashomon is a very complex story to, you know, communicate what is a pretty simple concept, but it's fascinating. It's a fascinating film. Yeah. I think this is the opposite. It's a pretty simple story, but it's communicating a lot of sort of complex concepts and, and ideas. And, you know, it's it's very interesting that, that you can, yeah... It's very weird because I was, yeah. <laughs> I, I sat there for a good half hour trying to figure out what movie to put on yesterday mm. because I really wanted to do this movie, but I was just like, oh, we're on vacation and we're hanging out and I should choose something light. And oh, it's so dreary to choose this movie about this man who's dying, but I really wanted to do it. <laughs> I yeah. was like, this movie's important to me and I think it's, it's, it's time. It was right. Well, I, I don't, I mean, like, I always get a little bit personal, but like, that is like been my I mean I I guess <laughs> I got to the point in my life where I had done the things that I wanted to that I was supposed to do, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I got to a point where I was like, okay, well I've done all those things. Do I just keep doing this forever? Like what what is the point? I mean, like I just I didn't know <laughs> Like, are we just, are we just doing this? This is just, I'm going to be a librarian forever and I'm going to show up and, and I'm going to live in this place. And, you know, life is pretty good. You know, we have the things that we want and we live in a nice place and all but of this. But it's so samey. But it's so the same, you know, and I just, I was so bored, but I couldn't even admit that to myself. But then, I mean, like, <laughs> unfortunately it takes like, it or for me, maybe other people come to it but it took you know the my dad died and like my whole life changed it looks completely different than it did before you know and I, I wish he was here so I could share that with him I wish that it didn't take that mm -hmm. for me to but that was the realization that for me I mean like it really changed me and and made me realize that like that I I, I could just do that but I would be you know, bored and unhappy doing that same thing. I mean, and so like I needed to, I needed to, I needed to change. I needed to try new things. So I learned, I learned to play an instrument and I started taking architecture classes and I got a divorce and, you know, all of this, you know, things. And like now it's like, it's once you make that one big change, then like when, when it's time for another change, you're like more aware of it. So like when, <laughs> when you're making, well, you've learned yeah. that change is possible. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, but I'm I'm glad that it happened. You know, I, I'm glad that I have more than six months to <laughs> to do that. I hope that that if you guys are experiencing something similar, that that you make those changes and make your life meaningful. And, I mean, because like what I realized is that this is all we get, you know, mm -hmm. this is, you know, why, <laughs> you know, if you have the power and privilege to change your life, you know, even in a small way and make it better for yourself, why not do that? Mm -hmm. You know, why, if this is all we have, you know, why not try to make the most of it? You know, why not make life better for people? So like now, you know, I'm, I'm doing this thing where I'm going to school for myself, but like, I have this goal of like, working towards making spaces better for other people too, you know, so it's not, it's selfish, and it's not, you know, mm -hmm. so I don't know, I, I get, I get, um, 
what Watanabe is is saying. Like, if you have the, use what power you have. Well, to, <laughs> and I'm seeing this at yeah. my age and being yeah. like, I don't want to be Watanabe. Yeah. And maybe it's time for me to change too. <laughs> yeah. You know, before yeah. I end up. Well, I'm not going to ever have the perfect attendance. I'm yeah. afraid to say, <laughs> but you know. Well, I, I, I mean, don't want to just push papers around for thirty years. Your journey is different than than <clears throat> than mine. I mean, and and that's that's. I think that's something that's. I mean, I'm so glad that our lives are joined together. But like, your your mission. You have a different mission. You have children. You have a different mission. You know. So I don't know. Yeah, but I don't know what that yeah, mission is. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I don't I th- want my mission to just be reactive <laughs> no, to other people no, and what yeah. they need. You yeah. know? So I, I have to figure out my thing. Too. Yeah. Well, you bring a lot of joy to my life, but I know you should. Oh, I, like I said, <laughs> you shouldn't live for other people. You have to do your own thing. And, yeah. you know, whatever that is for you, I hope that you give yourself the space to find that, you know, because, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I know you're talking about different people's perspectives. I'm sure people look at me and think, Boy, she's selfish. She doesn't have any kids. She's just doing her own thing. You know, I, I mean, like, I Nobody know... Nobody says I, that. That's well, in your no, head. Well, the thing is, is people do say that. But the, I don't care. <laughs> you know, because cause it's not their life to live. It's mine. Yeah. You know, and, and, and people's perspectives are going to be different. They're going to look at my life and say, you know, she didn't do the things that that women are supposed to do, you know, but I, I don't care, you know, that's, that's fine. <laughs> you don't have to do what other people, but think I mean, to, to me, the most important thing is to find joy and to find creativity and to find those things that, that make life meaningful and, and do my best to make things easier for other people with the skills that I have. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, that's, that's what my life is you know <laughs> and i could do that as a librarian but i i want to do it as an architect now yeah. so you know okay you know that was awesome <laughs> <laughs> well this is not as, as big a, this is not a life change but yeah. movies like <laughs> movies and art like this yeah. make my life meaningful having yeah. conversations like this with you yeah. make my life meaningful yeah. so why Thanks for being it? my wife and my co-host. <laughs> wife and co-host. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it'll, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Anytime. All I got, the time. I got nothing else. Yeah, You said too. it so beautifully. Well, thank you. So, uh, maybe we will make it to episode 100 before you move away. Yeah, let's hope so. We've got a month and some. And if not? <laughs> uh, I, th- I promise we'll figure out a way to do the podcast on Zoom. Okay. Or something Zoom like cast. that. Zoomcast. Zoomcast. Well, I just have to um, get a mic. Yeah. Okay. I'll talk to you off, off mic about that because I have an idea. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks for listening to us, everybody. Uh, go catch some good movies of your own. Um, you can always drop us a line at shutupwatchthis at gmail.com if you want to chime into our conversation and say your piece Tell your friends about the show and um, hope you'll join us again the next time we get together to talk about Ashley's choice. All right. Bye. Which is not Sophie's choice. (laughs) Sorry. No. I've never seen Sophie's (laughs) choice or read Sophie's choice. Bye. Bye. (laughs)